Hello, and welcome to Tuesday Thanks, presented by Leeds Hospitality Group. I'm your host, Brian Proctor. Join me as we sit down to chat with yet another industry leader. Our guests come from a wide range of professions across the globe. We'll take the time to learn about their journey, where it started, and where they are today. We use this opportunity to allow the guests to thank an individual or individuals that played a key role in their career understand what they learned from the experience and how they have incorporated it into their own development and growth. Gratitude is strongly and consistently associated with greater happiness. Not only can it help your mental well-being, it can also improve your physical health. So join us as we share some great stories, thank a lot of wonderful people, and of course, share some laughs. Let's do this. Hello, and welcome to episode one of season four. I'm excited to be joined today by Jean-Luc Baron, CEO of White Lodging. Founded nearly 40 years ago by the legendary Bruce White, White Lodging remains a family-owned, multi-brand, multi-segment developer, owner and operator of premium brand, market-leading hotels, scratch-made restaurants, and award-winning rooftops in high-growth urban markets. With a collection of luxury ranches and a portfolio of more than 50 high-end urban and lifestyle hotels under the Marriott, IHG, Hyatt, and Hilton brands, White Lodging continues to be one of the premier hospitality companies in the country. Jean-Luc, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with me today. I really appreciate it. My pleasure, Brian. It's great to be with you. Well, we've got a lot to cover because you've had a great career. You're still a young guy, but you've done so much. So let's start at the beginning. You're a young guy over in France. What kind of gets you into the hospitality mold? You know, a lot of our colleagues, I think, have fallen into it. You know, it's a job that led to a career. In my case, it was slightly different. I knew at a really young age I wanted to be a chef. And don't ask me why my family had nothing to do with the business, but somehow I wanted to be a chef and I was absolutely determined to do that. I don't know if it's, you know, spending time in my grandmother's kitchen, which I spent a lot of my time when I wasn't in school, both at the markets in the south of France and then in our kitchen subsequent to the market visit. And where she took great pride and care about, you know, cooking the best meal she could every single day. And she never seemed to get tired of it. <laughs> and so I, I learned really young and, you know, in Europe, a lot of a lot of kids spend a lot of time in the kitchen. That's where you socialize. That's where you end up with multi-generational sort of gatherings. Food is everything. And the origin of food is even more important. So I I'm, I can only surmise that that's where I developed the liking for it. But I, I don't know where it came from otherwise. Wow. So now did you take that love of cooking to a culinary school or did you I just did. get right so into I, the restaurant? That's right. I attended culinary school in France, which, you know, was the outcome of a, a bit of a fight with my parents who insisted I'd go to college instead of culinary school. And I always tell this story. I ended up winning uh, because I got to culinary school instead of college, only to go back to college 20 years later. So we both won. I look at it that way. Yeah, I, th I think you uh, turned out OK for, for going both ways. Yeah. So you go to culinary school. What was the first job you had fresh out of culinary school? It was a seafood restaurant right on the Mediterranean in my hometown. And that's really the only time I ever worked in my hometown is right out of culinary school. That restaurant was, was pretty phenomenal for me as a kid who had just gone to school 
and really didn't know anything about the business. And then trying to apply some of the concepts and theories that you learn in school, which were, they were great, uh, but until you put that into practice and you understand how that gets translated in the day-to-day real-life operation, you don't really know anything about anything. And it was the, the school of hard knocks at the time. It was, you know, you started at the very bottom, didn't matter that you went to school, and you had to earn your way up. The one thing I learned, though, at that time was that the chefs I worked with were incredibly generous with their knowledge. They made you earn it, but they shared, there were no secrets. There's nothing they wouldn't pass on as long as you earned it. And the reason I stress that is because you had to demonstrate that you were really engaged and you were, this is what you wanted to do for them to pass on their knowledge. But once you gain that trust, they shared absolutely everything. And was it the type of environment there in France where you, it was like a 12 hour day or was the restaurant just lunch and dinner or was it, you know, how how hard did they work you? Yeah, they worked us hard. So restaurant was lunch and dinner and, and we worked split shifts and we worked six days. So the work week was six days at the time. This is a long time ago, obviously. And you always work split shifts. So you started around. 8, 8.30, and then you work through the lunch, and then you took two, two and a half hours of a break, and and then you started again around five o'clock, got back in the kitchen, and started getting ready for dinner. You know, people eat a little bit later, particularly around the Mediterranean, so we didn't start service. The restaurant didn't open until seven o'clock, so when we got back around five, we had still a couple of hours to get ready, and then it closed. Whenever the chef said they'd take the last table, there was not a standard time to finish. Oh, wow. That must have been fun. How long did you do that before you moved on? I did that for a year and then I moved on to the next job. And, you know, one of the other things that I was taught when I started in the business was that in culinary, at least, you had to switch positions and all properties every, you know, year, year and a half, because the learning curve is the steepest in the first little while. And if you can't pick up those recipes and that menu and that process, you know, in 12 or 18 months, you're not that small. And and so after 18 months, it was time to go and work for another chef so that you can add to your library of recipes in this case and continue to grow. Now, did you stay within France or did you start venturing out into other countries? I, I stayed in France and I ended up working at one of the um, best hotels in the world, actually, Grand Hotel du Cap in, the, in Antibes. And I did an entire season there. And then worked with an incredible chef that was probably one of the hardest I have to work with, but also one of the uh, most talented. And then from there, I expatriated myself to Switzerland for five years. And I worked in Lausanne on the the lake there in the summertime. And I worked in Verbier in the winter. So I really had the best of all world working seasonally like this. And I got about a month off and in between each time. Uh, spring and fall so it was a it was a pretty good life and at the time we obviously lived in the hotels that we worked in and and so they took great care of us and you know we spent all our all our money and all our salary in partying essentially and that's that's all we did and and learn how to cook well yeah you're in some of the most desired destinations of the world right Mm -hmm. And you're living in the hotel. It's got to just be overwhelming. I mean, to think back now, back then you were just kind of all into it. So you probably don't realize 
how lucky you are being in those situations. But looking back now, I mean, Mediterranean, Lausanne, Verbier, I mean, these are world-class destinations. Yeah. Yeah. And at the time, we, I think you're absolutely right. We took it for granted. Mm-hmm. But it was just, you know, that's the next job and the next job and the next job as you're progressing through your career. And I was obsessed with food. So we spent all our money partying and then eating out. Yeah. So we picked some of those really, really cool and at the time restaurants that, you know, Michelin star and the like in, in and, and France and Switzerland are border each other. So it's pretty easy to go back and forth. And, and if we ever got a day off, that's what we did. We had booked one of those experiences and we spent our last dime on those restaurants just because we thought those chefs were gods to us. Any run-ins with any massive celebrities back then for you, or were you? Uh, Girardet is one of the guys oh. I followed for a long, long time at the time, and and he happened to be in his restaurant one time. It's between Genève and Lausanne, and and he stopped at our table, and I thought, God, that touched me. It was, you know, just saying hi to this guy and shaking his hand was was unbelievable. Well, in those days too, you know, you didn't have all the selfies and the cell phones and everything. So you, so you probably engaged with him more so than rather just, you know, getting a picture or something. Yeah. Yeah. We didn't have cell phone. We could not, I don't have a picture that I can show you. No. Yeah. You know, I remember those days, even early nineties. I mean, we didn't have all that stuff and you would actually just get to engage with them and talk with them and you take those memories with you. So, so you're in Switzerland. What's next after Switzerland? After Switzerland, I had a bright idea to go to, I was looking for the next opportunity and the next opportunity happened to be in a brand new hotel in Edinburgh, Scotland. And it was the Sheraton on Lothian Road, just below the Edinburgh Castle. And at the time I responded to an ad in the new, again, no internet. So I responded to an ad in the newspaper, a industry newspaper that advertised jobs. And I got hired because there was no such thing as an HR department at the time. And so the chef would do his hiring or her hiring. And I got a call in French from the chef that was from the southwest of France. And I never, I don't know, I, you know, dumb me, but I should have thought that, you know, people spoke a different language in Scotland. And, Mm But I also thought in the kitchen, everybody's got to speak French. And because the chef hired me and spoke French, I got this job just by talking on the phone. He knew where I'd worked. And that's really how I worked at the time. Is if you work for this guy or that guy or this, this chef, then I know sort of where you are. And if you could make it with those, I know what you can do for me. So I get hired. I get in my car. I get on the ferry. That's before the, the channel existed. And uh, get on the other side drive up to Edinburgh or any night, get there, and I get to the front desk and I can't even tell them what I'm doing here. And so I had to put my offer letter and put it on the desk to for them to even understand who I was and what I was doing there. So they, they eventually put two and two together. They called the, the chef that was on duty that night and they put me in a room and told me by showing me the clock what time I had to come back the next morning. That's how much English I spoke. Of course, in high school, I took German, so... You know, that wasn't very helpful in Scotland. And uh, the next day I met the chef. We drank a couple of espressos in his office. We talked about the good old days and rugby teams in France. And and then he introduced me to my uh, department, which was the cold kitchen. I had seven guys working for me, not one of which spoke any word of French. Oh, wow. 
So that made for, you know, 16 and 18 hour days for months, because if I needed something to be done, I couldn't just ask them to do it at first. I would have to start something for them to understand what I wanted done. And then they'd, they'd go, ha ha, okay, got it. And then, and then finish it. But obviously that took 10 times as long as it should have. And it became one of those things in life, I think, where you, you look back and say, you know, I think that was a defining moment because I could have just packed up my, my car and, and headed straight back to Switzerland or wherever. And I thought, I'm not going to let that thing beat me. And I ended up learning, I, I would say, 90 to 100 days later, I was sufficiently fluent from a work standpoint that I could get stuff done, communicating to the team what I needed done. Obviously, it took longer to, you know, learn the language. I still sometimes think I'm not that good. But but when I look back, I'm a lot better than I was. Edinburgh is one of my favorite cities to visit. And I can only imagine trying to learn English in that city with those accents and everything, because I can barely understand yeah. some sometimes. You know, it's really funny you say that. Everybody speaks about you know, laughs and says, how the hell would you learn English in Scotland? Yeah. You can't understand them. And my answer is always the same. I did not know they had an accent. <laughs> I just thought that was English. That's true. Yeah, you wouldn't know any different. Right? I wouldn't and know. I, I mean, my family, we did the, you know, comes from Scotland and we were actually kicked out of Scotland for as horse thieves. We were apparently my family was horse thieves and we were kicked out of Scotland <laughs> into and we settled in Leeds. England, which is you know, mm-hmm. the name of my company, Leeds Hospitality. Yeah. But yeah, so I, you know, having been there and having worked there, I just love that air, you know, that country and Edinburgh's fantastic. So, so now how long did you survive Scotland? Three years. Three years. Wow. Yeah. And I loved it. You know what? Once I got past the, I can't communicate. And once I started to, mm-hmm. I absolutely loved it. Yeah. It's, it's just so gorgeous there. So yeah. from Scotland, we then go where? From Scotland, I went back to Switzerland to do one more season. They had called me back to go back to Verbier. So I did one more season in Verbier. And then from there, that's the first time I came across the Atlantic and I landed in Nova Scotia. And uh, why Canada? Again, same thing. It was a job that was advertised in a local newspaper, industry newspaper in French. And at the time I thought, okay, I know they speak both French and English there. So now that I've got a little bit of the English uh, behind me, I can I can get by, so why not? And that's how it started. And so I, I worked in Digby, Nova Scotia, in a, yeah, in a resort uh-huh. there. Which resort were you, were you the there? The Digby Pines. The Digby Pines, really? Wow. Yeah. 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 I, I mean, I love Nova Scotia. I love, I worked in Halifax. I opened up the Sheraton, which is now the Marriott Harborfront there. Yeah. And I was just up there this summer. My oldest brother has retired in, in Seabright, Nova Scotia. Yeah. And then after the Digby Pines, I ended up working. I was the corporate chef for two seafood restaurants in Halifax. The Clipper K, which is right across the street from on the wharf. Yeah. Yeah. From the Sheraton and and McKelvey's. Uh, oh, wow. Really? Street. Yeah. Yeah. No, I have dined at both. Excellent. Yeah. yeah. What years were you there? I was in Nova Scotia. I moved to Canada in on May 25th, 1989. Okay. I had left in 87. Yeah. yeah. So we just missed each other. Yeah. So now how long were you down in the Maritimes? I was in the Maritimes for about 
two years. And then my next job was at the Queen Elizabeth in Montreal. So I knew the chef from Europe. He was a French master chef. So it was like one of those guys that you must work for. Mm-hmm. And I sent him a letter because, again, it was all by letter. And then he's like, absolutely, come on over. And I went to the to the consulate in Halifax because I had a work permit at the time. So I had to transfer that to Montreal, took that over to the Fairmont, start, uh, which is the Fairmont now, was CP Hotels yeah. at the time. And started working and about three months into it, I get two guys from immigration office showing up in the office saying, what are you doing here? I said, well, I'm working. (laughs) What was interesting was that what I didn't know and what nobody told me, obviously, at the consulate, because it's a federal body, is that they needed a Quebec permit as well as a Canadian federal permit, I guess, which I had no knowledge of. So we had to sort all that out. And then... After that, I worked in Toronto at a, a hotel called the Bristol Place. It's now Western. Mm-hmm. At the time, it had one of the best dining rooms. And it's funny because that hotel was quite a ways from, I mean, 30 minutes from downtown, yeah. uh, close to the airport. But it had one of the best dining rooms in Toronto called Zachary's. And Zachary's was where everybody used to come and eat lunch. And these were the good old days where people would spend several hours at lunch. Um, and the entirety of Bay Street and, and the law firms and everybody else, you know, very high-end business lunches were taking place at Zachary's every day. So, and I worked with a really, really good chef at the time that taught me a lot. His name was Dominic Dian. That was a, he had traveled around the world, had been a chef for some celebrities and, and that kitchen afforded us the ability to do really what we love to do, which is cook iron meals all day long, lunch and dinner. Yeah. Well, the Queen Elizabeth was one of the reasons I got into this business. Mm -hmm. My father was with Montreal Trust, which was in Placeville Marie, right across the street. And I think I've told the story on the show, but I make a very long story short. I went in with him on a Sunday. We lived out on the West Island and we went in and he was practicing for a speech, the board of directors speech the next day. And, you know, I was just taken aback by, remember they had, I don't know when you were there, they had the beef eater dormant. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, they, they, we parked the car, they knew who he was, they greeted him. I said, wow, that's kind of cool. And then they had, I forget the maitre d's name at the beaver club, but he said, can you take care of my son while I'm talking? So we went to his table in the beaver club, you know, which was the the restaurant there. And, and, And apparently my dad told me, when we got in the car to go home, apparently I said to my dad, I'm going to run a place like this one day. And I was probably 12 years old. That's awesome. Yeah. So, all right. So enough about me. So you're in Toronto up at Bristol, which was a great hotel. I was at the Four Seasons mm-hmm. in Don Mills, the old inn on the park. Yes. Um, so it's amazing how like our path has been since you got to Canada. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And then from Toronto is it was the next move up to Ottawa from there or no so so then I decided to do business on my own and I ended up opening a commercial bakery and a restaurant in uh, near Mont-Tremblant. Yeah, so I did that for about three years, and then from there from there I moved to Vancouver uh, at the time to the Delta Pacific, and. From there, they moved me uh, a couple of years later to the Delta Bow Valley in Calgary. Mm-hmm. 
And then from there, I joined Starwood. So I joined Starwood in 1998, six or eight, I can't remember now. And I joined Starwood at the Western Ottawa. So that's where the Ottawa reference comes from. So you, Nova Scotia, Ontario, mm -hmm. back to Quebec yeah, twice for Queen Elizabeth and then Mont Tremblant, and then out west to Vancouver and then All to right. Calgary and then mm -hmm. to Ottawa. Yeah. Did you have a favorite location of all of these places? In I, Canada? I mean, I, I don't, you know, I make, I mean, in this business, I'm not alone. I think a lot of us have moved many, many times. And, and I think you make home where, you know, you happen to be, mm -hmm. you know, I think I appreciate different things in different cities. I don't know that I can tell you I have an absolute favorite. You know, Ottawa spent almost six years in total in Ottawa. I really love the area. I love the proximity to the French-speaking part of the country, obviously, just across the river. So there was some affinity around food and, and language and stuff like that. But uh, it's also the nation's capital. So it's, it's a, you know, it's a beautiful city. It's a green city. It's a safe city. It's got a lot of entertainment and, and museums and arts and all the rest of this stuff. So... And I also like the proximity to the rest of the world. Ottawa is pretty centrally located. Mm -hmm. What I found in Vancouver, as beautiful as it is, it is at the other end of the planet, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> and it's a long way from a lot of places, you know. So you you spend the six years in Ottawa at the West End, I believe, right? That's correct. And then you made the jump to corporate. I did. I was the F&B guy for Canada for probably two, two and a half years with Stephen Foster, who was the regional at the time. Mm -hmm. And then I got a call from Stephen Foster one day saying, hey, the guy was in Calgary at the Western in Calgary. The GM is moving to open the Western in Boston. Waterfront. And, and so when David left, I got that job. And and then I became the GM. And at the time, I could not understand. And this is one of those moments again where, you know, I'm like, hey, I'm already a corporate guy. Why do you want me to go back on property? And Stephen explained to me that, you know, this is part of the, the program, so to speak. And in his mind is that, look, you don't want to lose touch too, too soon with the reality of what's happening on the day to day. And this is a, the biggest hotel in the city of Calgary. Calgary was booming with the old sands, et cetera, at the time. So it's a high visibility job. It's a tough ownership group. It was Starwood Berry portfolio. And so it's a great asset to go to and you really should consider it. And that's, that's what I did. And I did that for about three years. And then I was asked to go and assist. So Carla Murray, whom you know very well, who's yep. one of my mentors, is, you know, called me because she got the responsibility when Starwood reshuffled the regions. And Carla became my boss in Calgary towards the end of it. And then she called me and says, you know, there's a, a collective bargaining going on in Vancouver and, you know, from Seattle, it's not that easy. We don't know much about the labor laws in the country, blah, blah, blah. You've got some experience with negotiating in Canada. So could you assist? And the GM is no longer there, by the way. And so I did two days and three days back and forth every week for a, a few months, helping out with negotiation and sort of keeping the lights on at the Western Bayshore in Vancouver at the time. And, and then when I helped negotiate that collective agreement, she also called me and says, 
the owner would like you to move permanently to Vancouver and run that hotel. So I ran the Bayshore for four years. And then you also, you know, know, and just to jump in for my listener in Topeka, Kansas, the Westin Bayshore and the Westin Calgary are two iconic hotels in Canada that have been around forever. I mean, the Westin Calgary was the old Western Inn when the, when the airlines, and it was actually the first hotel I worked in after college was at the Westin Calgary. And David Connor, who you replaced, yeah. went to work at the Western Boston Waterfront, working for me as the general manager there when we were doing all the pre-opening. Yeah. So it's amazing the connectivity. But those the Western Calgary, Western Bayshore, those were iconic Canadian hotels. Yeah, they still they still perform well. I mean, the Bayshore, I mean, the location on on yeah. uh, you know in Cole Harbor is just unlike anything else, right next to Stanley Park. It's a phenomenal property and continues to be. I don't know if you know that, but if you're familiar with the Western Calgary, and I'll probably make a long story long, but one day I'm sitting in my office and my assistant calls me and says, hey, there's a gentleman downstairs that wants to meet with you and he's insistent. He wants to talk to you. So I'm like, do you know what it is? Is this a complaint? What is it? I go downstairs and I meet this 82-year-old gentleman who shakes my hand and, and introduces himself as Smiley Rayburn. I still remember today. And Smiley was the original owner, partner of the Western Calgary. Oh, wow. And so I buy him a coffee and then he, he proceeds to explain to me why he was in the old business and did really well in the old business. So he had no business being in the hotel space. That said... He and his friends used to spend an enormous amount of time and money at the Fairmont in Calgary, at the Palliser, at mm-hmm. the bar, which was pretty famous for a lot of years, the Oak Room, right? Yeah. And, and one time they probably got a little rowdy and got evicted from the Oak Room and told that they were no longer welcome. And those guys got banded together, got enough money to build. And they're like, hell with this. We're going to build our own hotel so we can rig in our own ball. And that's a, that is an absolute true story. Wow. Yeah, that hotel. I mean, the, when I was there, I don't think uh, there was a restaurant there called the Owl's Nest Restaurant. Of course. And it was the fine dining. And during my time there, which would have been. I want to say 81 to 80, um, you know, the oil boom was going and, you know, the Saudis would come in and buy out the restaurant and right. all the money was just obscene yeah. that was yeah. going on in yeah. that city. Yeah. Yeah. But, oh, that's too funny. Oh, I could talk for days on that. So, all right. Mm-hmm. So working with Carla is a dream. She's an absolute wonderful leader. Mm-hmm. And luckily I had her on the show as well early on. So after the Bayshore gig, then I think you became head of global food and beverage with Starwood. That, no? That's correct. So this was another one of those where, you know, at the time, Steve Foster was back in Canada somehow. You know how those regions used to yeah. shift. And then I think it would have been Fritz who had asked the, each divisional president to submit a name for a new position being created, which was Global VP of Food and Beverage. And so Denise Cole asked each of the RVPs, I guess, to submit somebody from their region. And Steve submitted my name. And the hiring manager at the time was Matt Evo. So I went through the interview with Matt a couple of times over. And after a 
number of interviews, I got afforded the job and, and I started in White Plains at the time for a few months until we moved to Stanford. Yeah. And so how, how was that? Cause I that mean, was a newly like created, that. yeah, that was a newly created position, but I remember, you know, Matt Evol, who, you know, I only worked with him for a little while because he retired uh, about a year later, but you know, it was, it was pretty, pretty defining other moment for me, understanding, you know, the sort of the, the budget at the time was several billion dollars just in FNB. And I remember Matt explaining to me when I said, you know, I'm not, there's no book, there's no training manual for this position that you just created. So what are the expectations, et cetera? And, and he said, you know, we're in the food and beverage business, whether we like it or not. We all love to say, you know, we're not making as much money and it's not as profitable and this and that, but we're in it to the tune of billions. And so we may as well make the best of it. So mm -hmm. a lot to do with rationalization and, and Phil McCavity was very involved as well at the time from a branding perspective, et cetera. So we try to put a framework together and, and you know, move a tanker or the, you know, as, as the, the saying goes. And, you know, not easy, but the, the team was really engaged and, and felt and, and certainly understood that there was a real desire to make a difference and to slowly make a mark and to figure out, you know, what are the low hanging fruits first and then what should we do next and how do we differentiate ourselves, et cetera, et cetera. That's when we also had the partnership, if you remember, with Jean-Georges and Culinary mm -hmm. Council by Jean-Georges, trying to really instill some of that freestanding restaurant type feel in some of the locations where it was appropriate. And at the time, Brian, you probably remember that a lot of the, the growth was occurring overseas. So I spent probably two thirds of my time, if not more, in Asia, Middle East and South America, because that's where it was just booming at the time. Yeah, because I, I mean, I officed in, in Stanford at the same time, and I don't remember seeing you there that much. I was not there much. No, no, no exactly. So, so you did that for a couple of years. And then do I have my research right that you moved back to Toronto? I did. So I told you I joined Starwood. When I joined Starwood, I left uh, Delta Hotels at the time to join Starwood. And I still had a lot of friends in Delta Hotels. And a um, gentleman who's now uh, passed was the um, head of HR for Delta Hotels. And, and he had always stayed in touch with me. And at the time, the company had been sold. So Fairmont owned Delta. They sold it to the second largest pension fund in Canada, which was called CIMC. It's a pension fund out of uh, the West Coast. And the CEO at the time of that uh, um, pension fund really wanted to relaunch the brand, make a mark and, and et cetera, et cetera. And so they made me a, a pretty interesting offer. And it was not just the compensation piece. It was really the excitement about doing something with that brand and being on the, at the start, if you will, of reinventing the brands, relaunching the brand. And really the ambition was to go out and franchise across the globe. So first we built the Delta Toronto, uh, which was supposed to be the poster child of what a Delta brand should be because the brand mm -hmm. had been um, 
I don't want to say neglected, but almost neglected. There was the band was really, really big between a great delta and, and not so great delta. Yeah. And so, so that was the the starting point. And then what we did was we tried to have Marriott do the franchising outside of Canada for the brand. And Marriott decided that it was probably easier for them to just take the whole thing. And that's why Marriott acquired Delta. So you were there for again a couple hmm. of years, and yeah. then you moved on to you moved kind of next door to the Trump. Right? That's company. correct. And that's because obviously when Marriott picked up everything, everything, everybody got laid off. Yeah. And it just so happened that I got a call from a headhunter literally like within the same weeks of that happening. And I moved across the street all, all along knowing that, you know, I wanted to get back into a bigger type of environment. But at the time that was, and it, it was a great hotel and it still is a great hotel. I believe it's the St. Regis now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and so I ran that hotel until I could find the next job. And the next job really came in the form of White Logic. I got a call, a, a cold call, literally from a, a recruiter for White Logic, and we started talking. And it took several months, and eventually I landed here. And they brought you in to White Logic at first as the VP of their food and beverage. I think that right? is correct. That was uh, Bruce White, who's, who's who you mentioned earlier. Bruce really wanted to make a difference in the hotel space as it relates to food and beverage, and understood that you know with the encumbrances that sometimes come with operating an F&B outlet within the confine of a hotel, you may or may not be uh, able to level the playing field and compete head to head with a freestanding restaurant. But certainly we could do better than as an industry we traditionally have done. And, and he was a firm believer that it was he saw an opportunity and thought we need to equip ourselves from a resource, from a training standpoint, from a product standpoint to be able to compete better and, and more with freestanding restaurants. And that was really the genesis, but also the reason for me to make the move was really that passionate sort of uh, aspiration to really shake up uh, the world of food and beverage in the hotel, at least in the white lodging space. Yeah. And and the thing you knew about Mr. White was whatever he said, he backed up, right? And it was always going to be the best it could be. And I don't recall ever hearing any stories about penny pinching or, you know, all that kind of stuff that if Bruce White was going to do it, he was going to do it the right way, which kind of laid the foundation for his company being such a admired management company. And that's, I think you hit it on the, on the head. You know, Bruce, Bruce understood that you have to invest in what you're trying to accomplish. You can't just have an aspiration and not put the support behind it. One of the best examples of that would be training. He was always after us to train, train, train. And the reason for that for him was that... <clears throat> If we don't train properly, we are only going to get the results of the lack of training. And so he always said, your training needs to be equal or better than your outcome expectations. In other words, you got to overtrain to get to your desired outcome. Most people just set the outcome expectations, but they don't back it up with what is required to get the team there. Um, you're absolutely right. Bruce totally understood that. And when he set his mind, when he set his mind on something, it was we are going to get it done. We're not just going to talk about it. 
we need to scope it properly. We need to understand what is going to be required to get there. And I am, I, I am the owner. I am going to invest in it. Now, I'm going to push you and I'm going to hold you accountable. But we're going to, we're going to get there. So lay it out. If I believe it, if I have confidence, that's the right plan. I'm going to put the resources behind it. But then you have to deliver, which I'm okay with that. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I love the way that we both are using the term invest with mm -hmm. Bruce, right? Because I think you are a living example of his investment, right? So he brings you on as a VP of food and beverage, invests in you over the last, call it what, seven, eight years. Yep. And, you know, your your career progression within White kind of is an investment on his part with you because you go from VP of food and beverage to SVP of food and beverage to COO and now the CEO. That's mm -hmm. an investment of many people's time and a lot of effort to get you into a leadership role that you can be successful in. So I, I think the term investment with Mr. White is probably a good one. Yeah, you know, the, the one thing I would tell you quickly uh, with Bruce was I, I used to joke with him and, and, and he used to chuckle because he would set a goal for me. And then as I got, you know, I'm starting to be able to see it. And then he would move the goalpost <laughs> further afar. And, and I used to say, boss, that, that doesn't make sense. Like, you know, and he, he used to laugh at that. And he used to say, you know, our job as leaders is to identify people's potential. Understand what they are capable of when they don't know what they're capable of. And then to set goals, but not so far out that they don't think that they can ever get there. Put it just far enough that they, they can see it or they can feel that they might have a shot at it. And as they get closer, you reset the bar every single time. And not everybody is going to be the same. So our job is to identify the potential for every one of our folks and then set goals that get them over time to that, you know, and there may even be an argument to be made that, you know, it's a limitless sort of thing. You can keep doing that for ever or as many times as you need to. Yeah. Now, how did the move from SVP of F&B to COO come about? Because that's a big jump. It, it was a big jump. But I think what Bruce and, and I remember having this conversation with him and for him, it was, hey, leadership is leadership is leadership and leadership is transferable. You don't have to, have to be an expert in everything. If you can lead a team, you can lead a team, you can lead a team. And you need to, you, now you need to equip yourself. And he was big on continual uh, education and always learning. Okay, that was one thing with Bruce, like he was an avid learner and he pushed all of us to continue to augment our, our knowledge, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. and, and so for him, it was, hey, you've done the job I wanted you to do, and you've demonstrated those leadership skills, you can move the needle. So now I need you to do this at the enterprise level. And there are things that you don't know because they don't fall within the scope of what you've either done before or, or, or that you know from school and whatnot, but you're going to have to learn those things. And he was very big on that. So learn the concepts of, but at the end of the day, you're not the guy doing it. You're the guy managing a team. Right. And so that's how it happened. And then the same thing with the CEO stuff. Well, I, I think it's great. I love watching growth from inside a company into these 
senior C-suite level positions because it shows the investment of time and energy and, and dollars into the people that they surround themselves with. So yeah. kudos to you for having, you know, so many, I mean, you've had such a, I mean, just think about all the exotic places you've lived, the jobs mm -hmm. you've done. It's just been a great run. So now as CEO at White, is there, you know, what's going on at White? Is there something, anything going on that you can tell us about or is it's, it, it business it, it, as usual? It is business as usual in, in a lot of ways. You know, it's never going to be the same without Boost. I, you know, I'd be naive to think it's the same. I mean, you know, he's, you know, it's almost a year and it's still missed and it yeah. will be for a long time to come. But we have a really solid plan. And, you know, if there was one thing Bruce was good at is planning and sort of seeing around the corner and, and seeing, you know, long term. So we have a we have a great growth path. We have a great strat plan. We we are executing against it. I mean, of course, we you know, we've been known to develop a lot of hotels over the years. We all know what the capital markets look like today. So I can't tell you how quick or how much we're going to develop in the next couple of years until things get back to normal. But we still have things on the drawing board. We're developing, at least at the design stage, new hotels. We're building two new hotels right now, two of which are opening next year. So, so it is business as usual for the most part, and, and the company is doing great. The family wow. has been very supportive. Mm -hmm. The board has been very supportive. And, and we're, just, we're just going about our business, and, and we haven't missed a beat. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. So, so listen, it's Tuesday and on Tuesday we thank folks. So mm -hmm. I want to kind of pass the microphone back over to you. And you've mentioned, you know, some chefs and Stephen Foster and obviously Mr. White and Carla Murray, some of the people that have kind of helped shape your career. And so I'll turn the mic over to you. Is there anyone else you'd like to thank for all the help you've received along the way? You know, I, I, I'll go to, I think, a common friend, Jeff Balotti. You said he was on your show uh, a mm -hmm. year ago. Jeff's been a, a great inspiration for me. He's a guy that came from operation just like I did, an outstanding individual. I still talk to Jeff uh, from time to time and, and always appreciate his, his insight. Matt Evol, who was my boss, as much, you know, this guy was giant because he, he was the number two in a, in a very large company. But it was an incredibly thoughtful individual as much as he was a pusher and hard to work for. It was also a human. And I got great memories of working with Matt. John Payton, I think you know John really well. Yeah. He's also another one of those guys that I really look up to and, and taught me a lot uh, when I worked for John. Denise Cole, who was the president for the America, who gave me the opportunity to and put my name forward to join Matt, Matt Evol's team at, as that global VP of FNB. Always had great interaction with Denise. So, I, I mean, there are dozens, hundreds of people over the course of the career. Some of the earlier times, you know, Wolfgang Leski uh, was that chef when I was in Vancouver the first time around that really helped me understand that it wasn't just about cooking. There were economics that had to be part of that equation. And as a young chef, like you just don't, you just care about cooking and you don't understand the financials until somebody just woke me up to the fact that they're not mutually exclusive and they both have to work in concert for it to be successful. But you know, Brian, the, the, the other thing that we don't often talk about, and there have been probably others that I'm, that I'm missing now and thinking that I've been defining in my career, but the thousands and thousands of associates that I've worked with over my time in the field that deliver those guest experiences every single day. I mean, we talk about people that we need to thank. 
I mean, they are the reason we all have a job and they are the reason why the guests keep coming back to our hotels at the end of the day. And then, you know, lastly, I mean, I, you know, Bruce White has been more than an inspiration. I mean, he's been a North Star for me since the day I started. I had a great relationship with him. I mean, he may be one of the guys or the guy that pushed me the hardest. But to your point, like he's invested in me because he obviously saw something and kept giving me uh, more responsibilities. And as I continued to deliver, he kept giving me more. You know, this was a guy that just would not settle for average, would not settle for mediocre, would never accept anything but excellence or, and until we got there, the pursuit of. And, you know, and he was not naive to think that we're ever going to get there because he figured once you get there or you think you got there, then the bar moved again. So, yeah, I, I have been incredibly blessed and fortunate. And I think it's a combination of, you know, I yeah, of course, I had to work hard like anybody else. But I think a lot of it is maybe predicated on um, being lucky and at the right place at the right time and having leaders at the time that took the time to either evaluate my potential and or to determine that they could see a different path for me. Another guy that comes to mind is uh, John Jarvis. He was my general manager when I was at the Western Ottawa. And he's retired now. And John is the guy that one day called me down to his office along with the director of rooms, who was my counterpart when I was the director of food and beverage there, and, and pushed two, literally two boxes of business cards across the, his desk. My counterpart was already sitting in his office when I got there. And then on my business card, on top of the box, you know, you got a, a sample business card. It said Jean-Luc Baron, director of rooms. And my colleague got his name with director of food and beverage. I knew nothing about rooms. He knew nothing about food and beverage. And John looked at both of us and said, I want you guys to come here this weekend, switch offices. On Monday, you're the director of rooms. And the other guy, on Monday, you're the director of food and beverage. And that was another example, I think, early example of somebody who figured that leadership is transferable. And did I have to learn? Yeah. Uh, you know, what do they do in laundry? What do they do in housekeeping? And, and how do you do a check-in? And yeah, of course, I had to learn that. But really, for me, the, the, the ha-ha moment was that I was able to lead a team in food and beverage. And then a week later, I was leading a team in rooms. And it took me several months to really dig deep and understand the details of how the processes work and how that all happens. But the bottom line being is that your job as a leader is to lead, not necessarily to do every little thing and and. You don't have to be an expert in every discipline in order to lead a team. You know, I'm, I'm laughing as you go through this and, as I, you know, two things. Number one, Denise Cole came up again. Yeah. And, you know, I've been trying now for four seasons to get Denise on the show. So <laughs> we're going to, you know, everybody's promised me they're going to get me Denise on the show, but I'll still That's work funny. on that. But it's funny you mentioned what John Jarvis did with you because I had a GM, Bob Graney, did the same thing for me. When I was at the Bellage in West Hollywood, he kind of flip flopped me in the, at the time he, the gentleman was a chef and bee. So yeah. obviously I couldn't take the kitchen role, but you know, he kind of made him take Jack, take all the room stuff and me do all the food and beverage stuff. And to your point, I knew nothing about F and B, but it was a great learning, you know, curve yeah. for a year for definitely. Yeah. So, and, you uh, know, the, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead. 
you know, the last thing is, you know, we, we talk about all these folks in, in, you know, at work, but I mean, the family, you know, is probably the next big support and, and necessary sort of leg of the stool is, you know, I wouldn't be where I ha am today if it wasn't for the support of my family. You know, I missed a lot of occasions. I missed a lot of time, you know, because especially as a chef, you're working on holidays and everything else when everybody's having fun. And I missed a lot of moments with my girls and, and so on, but they never made me feel guilty. And that's what I mean by, you know, the thank you uh, that goes to my family is, is maybe one of the biggest one, if not the biggest one, because they always understood that what I was doing was important to me. They always respected that, unfortunately, the hours that come with this job are not great when it comes to family life but it was necessary, or at least I thought it was. And never did I have to worry about, I made my own self feel guilty, so they didn't need to do it, I guess. But I wanna make sure that I thank them as well. Yeah, absolutely. In our business, that's always been the case, right? The family, if you've got the support at home, you can do magical things. So, so listen, you've had a great journey so far. You've still got a long way to go. You're a young guy with a long road ahead of you. I, what a great career, full of adventure, full of exotic locations and great stories. I could talk to you for another three hours, but I know you got a company to run. So I'm going to let you go. Can't thank you enough again for doing the show. So appreciative of that. So I'm going to end it like I always do, folks. If it's Tuesday, let's get out there and thank somebody. They're going to love it and you're going to feel good doing it. So Jean-Luc, continued success at White Lodging. And uh, thanks again for doing the show. It's my pleasure, Brian. you enjoyed the show today and thanks so much for tuning in we really appreciate it if you would like to be a guest on the show so that you can thank someone for their role in your career please reach out to me via our tuesday thanks website at www.tuesdaysthanks.com remember a sincere thank you goes a long way to making someone feel appreciated and can make their day so until next time be well be safe, and please don't be afraid to tell someone thanks. Chat soon.